call it. Call it, yes. For what? Just call it. Welcome to episode 7 of Call It Friendo with myself, Andy J. Ritchie, and my co-host, Danica Tiernan. In this week's episode, we discuss two films from acclaimed English filmmaker Nicholas Rogue, 1973's Don't Look Now and 1971's Walkabout. This podcast contains spoilers for both films right from the start. Check out justwatch.com for streaming options in your territory. This was a weird one for me because this week I got to realize that I, for such a weird director that I'm, I'm oddly like I'm I could take or leave a lot of the way. I have seen a lot of Nicholas Rogue movies at this point, such as I've seen like five of his films. So I've seen Performance, Now Walkabout, Don't Look Now, Bad Timing, and of course The Witches. I I have seen the the two from today and The Witches. That's it. We we can like talk about the like all in more detail later, but just suffice to say, if if you like what he's doing in Walkabout and Don't Look Now, that taking to its natural end is probably bad timing. This weird psychosexual, rapey, most Me Too movie ever. Oddly enough, starring Art Garfunkel as the the rapiest man oh, in the world. I saw that. I saw that uh, Nicholas Rogue had made a film with Art Garfunkel, but just looking at Art Garfunkel as the star of a film, I, I, I was feeling like pass. Yeah, isn't it mad? He went into his movie career and Paul Simon was like pining for him, little realizing that Art Garfunkel was fucking lucky ever to be t- uh, teamed up with absolutely. Paul Simon like what, what absolutely Paul Simon was the good one oh exactly and he, he we was all, all agree. The, the song The Only Living Boy in New York is about him being all bummed out in New York because Art Garfunkel was down in Mexico shooting um, th- uh, Catch heroin. 22 and heroin of course yes any road so yeah at this point I have seen five Nick Rogue films and um, yeah they're grand I suppose some of them are. I probably prefer the witches. Or I've certainly seen that more than any of the, the other. Witches ones. is great. Witches is a great. It's like I really enjoyed that. It's such a dark, dark kids film. Horrifying, yeah. Um, yeah. And actually, Nick Rogue shot the book ending, and Roald Dahl got all pissed off with him because he didn't include it. Uh, where the boy remains a mouse. Spoilers for the witches. Spoilers for er- mm. for everything beyond this point. Right. Also, when we get to walk about, we can talk about how that diverges from the book. Uh, you've read the book, didn't you? you? You said I have. I read it at school. <laughs> okay. And I can actually remember it. I'll, yeah, we'll, we'll get to that later. Indeed. All right. Well, speaking of things to read, I, pro- I don't believe I will ever have to read any Daphne de Maurier. Uh, but um, she's popping up everywhere recently because I was I was listening to an interview with Ben Wheatley, who's made a, a new adaptation of Rebecca. It's also a Daphne de Maurier book. Um, apparently, she was all the rage back in the day. But I'm never going to have to read about her now. So, uh, yeah. I suppose, shall I take it away with Don't Look Now, this week's first movie? Yeah, definitely. So, the Daphne de, Daphne de Maurier story that is based on, again, this film also diverges from that. Uh, That's right. In the, in... Reasonably. 
He, well, who knows? But in one way, very significantly, and it feels like yeah. they, they did that in order to tie together it, it, tie it together by way of like visual themes and so forth. But anyway, yeah, I think so. Let's fucking get to that. So, first movie we're going to talk about this week is "Don't Look Now," Nicholas Rogue's nineteen seventy three psychological horror meditation on death kind of thing. It's very much at the forefront of what was being done at the time with regards to like editing techniques and um, conjuring emotions and memory and shit with them. And like, yeah, in, it really, really does hold up in a certain manner. It's very famous for certain images, w- which we'll get into. Yeah. Um, and again, yeah, so it's based on a 1971 story, short story by Daphne du Maurier. It, the short story is of the same name, I believe, isn't it? I think so, yeah. It is called Don't Look Now. So this uh, film stars Julie Christie and Donald Sutherland as a married couple who lose, who their daughter drowns in the opening uh, moments and they bugger off to Venice to bury themselves in work and basically to try and get over it. Um, and with Julie Christie's Laura making more of an effort and Donald Sutherland's John Baxter making more of an effort to just bury himself in work. And I, I think the film basically bounces off those two methods of grieving and um, comes to a conclusion on which works better. Is that fair to say? I would say so, yeah. it's You've got one person, the mother who refuses to let go and the father who's staunchly in the camp of, she's dead. She's dead, dead, Laura. Dead. All right, so we'll start off. We've got a very, very famous intro scene with some very famous imagery in which basically John Baxter, Donald Sutherland's character, he um, looks at pictures of a church window as his wife Laura looks up the Earth's curvature on 1970s Wikipedia, let's say. And, uh, well, their daughter Christine drowns outside as their son Johnny watches. (laughs) Yes, it's an interesting interpretation indeed. As Johnny watches on, yeah, as his sister drowns. So we're already um, we're already beginning with the aesthetic of the film is really really strong from the opening of this. Yep, the colours, indeed, the red jacket that uh, the kid is wearing will be probably the main motif of the entire film. Yeah, and just that particular shade of of red, almost yeah. orange. Yeah, what's going on with that? I mean, have they just picked on that, or is that is there a, some psychological tradition with that colour? Well, I guess red generally doesn't symbolise good things, but also frequently, I think um, it's it, this wasn't the first time that uh, Nick, Nicholas Rogue had used red in his films. Are you? He'd also used it in. So Nicholas Rogue started off as a, a cinematographer. Well, mm. first he was a second unit director. Originally, he was second unit director on Doctor Zhivago and Lawrence of Arabia. Okay. Then he became a cinematographer. So he was a cinematographer on Francois Truffaut's Fahrenheit four five four fifty one. Not a bad lot. Um, while he was a cinematographer, he was a cinematographer on The Mask of the Red Death, ah. which depicted a, which depicted a red-clad Grim Reaper character. Ah, and maybe he took that line for a walk in Dawn so, of Now, is that what yeah, you're saying? So he had, he's used that before. There's also suggestions that the mysterious red-coated figure 
could possibly be drawing on Marcel Proust's The Remembrance, Remembrance of Things Past. Hmm. It's been a while since I've uh, read Remembrance of Things Past. But yeah, yeah, me too, which I, I do read it frequently, yeah. you know, every so often. It's quite it's a, it's a big popular one for me, definitely. Yeah, yeah. The toilet, it, but it does. Apparently one of the characters in that, while they're in Venice, uh, oh, sorry, the, the narrator catches sight of a red gown in the distance, which brings back painful memories of, of his lost love. Of a biscuit is lost. That's the, the that book's about a biscuit, right? It's about him tasting a biscuit. I haven't. Can I just shock you? I haven't actually read it. I was lying. Ah, well, so was I, but I, I still know it's about a biscuit. He tastes a metal. I would be very surprised. Is it really? Is it genuinely about a biscuit? Well, he eats a biscuit and he remembers a bunch of things. That's ge- that's right, what okay. kicks off the plot, really. Um, One of those special biscuits. And actually, I suppose it would. Like, yeah, Nick Rogue is definitely a fan of Proust I have not even fucking read Proust but I know it's all like him and James Joyce uh, pioneered that stream of consciousness um, as a way to represent the way the mind works in literature and he's definitely Mm. trying to do this in any of the films I've seen of his except for when he finally got his shit together and made The Witches which (laughs) has none of his arty nonsense thank fuck was you didn't like that? No, no, no. You didn't like these two films. No, 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 no. I did, I did, I did. I'll get. We'll, we'll get to all the uh, all of that in the end, anyway. So yeah, as they're sitting inside, he's looking at pictures of a church, and in one of the pictures of a church is a little uh, red hooded figure. Hmm. Wonder who that mm. is. I, I I would like to reserve a few minutes at the end of when we um, finish talking silence? about uh, this film, just to. Uh, meditate on what the hell is actually happening just just to meditate i could yeah i think i have a good concept of the film at this point okay all right all right cool i have i feel like i have a solid understanding of what the film is and when i did put it all together Mm. by reading and people telling me what to think i it really enhanced the film for me and i really like was it it your first time seeing this Yep. Okay, I think it's the third time I've seen it. Were you aware of the ending oh, before really? you watched okay. it? The ending is so famous. I think it's one of those endings like the usual suspects or things like that, that even if you haven't seen the film, you probably so you did know, know the ending. something about it. I did, yes. Uh, no, that's a pity, that's a pity. But we'll get to that eventually. What did you make of uh, the opening? Like, it's quite a startling bit of uh, filmmaking. I think it's well shot. I don't know if it's aged that well. I feel like both this and Walkabout, like I know that this film especially had fallen into a really bad state of disrepair. I watched like a Blu-ray, mm. a, a, a perfectly legal and, uh, you know, I, I I went to my local blockbuster video and rented the Blu-ray of nice. this film. And the audio mix was all over the place. Really? But I think, yeah, I this, but I... As far as I'm aware, it was part of the restoration, maybe. So um, the, the the film had originally fallen into a state of disrepair uh, over the years. And I think it was re-released. It was like remastered, re-released in 2014. But at least what the one I watched, the copy I watched, had very, very choppy. The audio mix sounded very dodgy. And some of the imagery are like, it's interesting to see. I mean, it must have been very low budget as well. Well, I'm guessing like... I actually, I have it here in front of me. It says it was uh, with a budget of 1.1 million, which uh, in the grand scheme, yeah, that would be small even for the day um, in the grand scheme of things. But I mean... where even So even that, that first scene... Mm. 
So it's filmed in this big house that Julie Christie and Donald Sutherland are, are living in. Mm. That house belonged to the actor David Tree, who played Anthony Babbage, the headmaster of the school huh. that uh, the boy goes to. So a very uh, so, John Cassavetes kind of approach to the film. Exactly, mm. yeah. It's like, well, would you get your friends and family to provide a filming location. So it's 1970, ah, 1973. Okay, no, Donald Sutherland would have, and Julie Christie would have both been he established. They, they were stars. Yeah, yeah, yeah they, they would have both stars. been established by this point. Yeah, so they must have, you know, they both wanted uh, to make this project. Well, they both wanted to work with they me. Nick Rogue um, sure I mean yeah. Nick Rogue had managed to rope Mick Jagger into work, working with him you know he was a well he already he already knew Julie Christie quite well because they'd worked on a series of films before when he was a cinematographer ah I see so just building so up context very, as he went along they'd known each other for quite a long time prior to this it's always interesting when you see um for me anyway films like this uh, being made back in the day because there's something very vanguard about the way he decided to make this and like it it's it's sort of like if you watch uh, robert altman films nowadays it's sort of a thing that in its purest form you can't really recognize it but it had a lot of influence in uh, um in in cinema throughout the ages but ultimately what he was trying to do with the way he was shooting this film peaked with him and people never really went near it again you know what i mean yeah if i'm being understandable anyway have you ever seen the film antichrist no but i understand that it's extremely similar to this yeah it is except instead of looking at pictures of churches and uh trying to figure out how the curvature of the world works inside in uh, antichrist willem dafoe and um charlotte gainsbourg are just are just yeah. having sex and yeah he gets his knob out yeah <laughs> he does get his knob out um indeed anyway so it's very well shot quite iconic imagery with donald sutherland hopping into a pond getting all covered in shit trying to save this lady uh, which will start this lady his his daughter yeah. uh, which will start a motif in the movie of donald uh, sutherland just getting all messed up on account of some lady trouble um, is how i interpret much of the film <laughs> describing him saving trying to save his 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 young daughter as lady trouble <laughs> yeah exactly just ladies oh, yeah it's accurate dragging, right, it's accurate, dragging him but... through the muck essentially so then anyway but, uh, like ladies. a real man ladies. like a real man donald sutherland his way of getting over the death of his daughter is to bury himself in work and pretend it didn't happen go on holiday to venice well he's working there now he's working i know i'm, I'm joking i that was a joke oh. i'm not suggesting that he was just He's going, going on holiday. We've gone on holiday by now. mistake. <laughs> um, oh, yeah, but we, we should mention at this point, yes, in the Daphne du Maurier story, they do, go on, they do go on a working trip to Venice immediately afterwards. But, but also the child, the child dies yeah. of leukemia. Meningitis. Meningitis, yes. sorry. A child dies of meningitis, which I can... Yeah, it's easy to see why they would have changed that just because the idea of him going straight to work while barely floating above the water of just this murky city that you can kind of get lost in its dark alleyways and right next to them there's a brightly lit street. It's just got so much poetic resonance that, you know, of course they changed it to that. It makes so much sense. And then they introduced like the motif of things being dragged out of the water throughout the the film that can easily um reco- yeah, recall back to the opening bodies. mostly dead bodies mm-hmm. indeed so he gets straight back to work in the but he's still partially submerged in his grief and then so he's restored and his 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 job is restoring churches yes it seems 
Yeah. Um, a good job. Yeah, yeah, and it's and it also gives him kind of a very pragmatic, almost an engineer's approach to spirituality, um, which mm-hmm. kind of plays very nicely off um, Judy Christie's Laura's approach. So then, anyway, they go for lunch, and um, they're disturbed by these two manky sisters. <laughs> Two old bags, two nosy old bags. These these two, so Heather and Wendy, one of whom is blind, they are like every other character in this film because basically every character in this film is really fucking creepy. Yes. In their line delivery, in their kind of just <laughs> you, staring, actually... like staring <laughs> off. Every single character you look yeah. at, like, is this guy a bad guy? Everybody who they encounter, lady? down to the manager of the fucking hotel, you're dead right, actually. Is a fucking weirdo. Yeah, yeah. Is being, <laughs> I assume, has been directed to act as creepily as possible. Yeah, you're right, actually. <laughs> it's really disconcerting. Yeah, I would have never quite put all that together, but I think you're right. I think there's not, a, there's not a normal person in this. That's why I find, except for I Donald find this film. I find this film really disturbing. Yeah, okay, but Donald Sutherland is dressed like fucking Doctor Who. That's right. I, so it's I, hard I, that to take him seriously. Well. Anyway, yeah, so the sisters are creepy as bejesus. They really, really are. The blind one is the worst. Um, yes, and then... Heather. Uh, well, we'll get onto her in a while and some of the... Na- but this is more lady trouble for, for John, as far as I can see. <clears> so <throat> then Laura heads off to the bathroom, at which point she's confronted by these... Two clairvoyant, well, no, there's two sisters, one of them clairvoyant. And while they're explaining to her that one is a clairvoyant, a blind lady, and there's just this creepy old witch sitting in the cubicle staring at them. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. What the fuck is with her? Is she like a bathroom Another lady? disturbing lady looking on. It is. Yeah, I guess. Presumably. There's no real... But she doesn't put perfume on them or anything. She just sits there staring. Well, she's not like that. She's not like she's not like a club attendant. She's probably a toilet cleaner. But she's just she's not cleaning it. She's just sitting in a cubicle with the cubicle open. Maybe maybe she's already done her job. Maybe she's really good at her job, and it's you know spotless. It's like it's definitely Nick Rowe just spotting a creepy lady fucking with the audience in Venice. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. it's just it's just to mess up the viewer's head. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough, actually, because it is quite it, it is works. disorientating. Yeah, it works. It is. It's like you're like Ugh, you're listening this, to the the whole film. The whole film just feels creepy at all times. Like it just feels like something is not right. Have you been to Venice? And it isn't. Oh uh, uh, yeah, I was going to go to. I've been to Venice before when I was a kid. I've never. I was going to go. I was going to go yesterday. Um, out of respect for the film and for the podcast, but. I didn't make it. I made it to Verona, which is halfway to Venice from where I live. But I do plan to go to Venice um, shortly, and I will definitely go to some of these locations. It's funny because the city of Venice were really Venice was really worried when this film came out because they thought it was going to scare tourists away, <laughs> which is so bizarre to me because like this is the kind of thing that makes me want to go to Venice. Yeah, yeah, for more. sure. I want to go and see these creepy places. I want to walk around the, the streets listening to the music. Incidentally, the music is, is really good. I've listened to the soundtrack album a few times now. This was the first first score that Pino Donaggio ever did because he was like he was a popular singer at the time. He's from Venice. And this was the first score that, that he ever composed. So he was a bit, he, he was sort of wondering why Nick Rogue wanted to, him to do it. But then he got into it and <clears throat> he did a good job. And then he became Brian De Palma's 
sort of go-to composer for a while afterwards. Yeah, making those just stylized to the point that they're laughable Brian De Palma scores for years. Yeah. Anyway, Laura... Laura, I'm living in Spain, sorry. Laura. <laughs> Laura emerges from the bathroom, sits down. Donald, Donald Sutherland just wants to get, get on <laughs> with it. Every time day. you say Donald, I feel like you're... You, you're like biting your tongue from saying Donald Trump. That's how it feels. It's actually, no, no, this, this is how into movies I am. It's actually from saying Donald Pleasance. I just want to say, oh, wow, okay. I just keep stopping myself saying Donald Pleasance. Anyway, John just wants to get along with his day. Just wants to have a grand old time. Laura comes out and fucking faints and makes a mess everywhere. More lady trouble messing up John's With day. the most ridiculous destruction of the table that they're sitting at. Like, they smash it. It's one of those yeah. things where you're, you're like, really, you could have, you, you, was that necessary? Did you have to, to fall, fall that way? Yeah. Over the table. It's like, Did you have to? Could you not have just fallen to the floor? I would have like felt bad person? for you, but you made a scene. That's, yeah. yeah, yeah like, <laughs> you didn't have to. It's just embarrassing. Exactly. You embarrassed. You're embarrassed us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, okay, I get it. You're having a tough time, but what the fuck? Anyway, so. Laura gets carted off to hospital and then John arrives there and she's there playing with these children in the mirror, in the mirror, in the window. In the mirror, yeah. She's in, a, she's in like a room, yeah, exactly, with a window and she can see into the kid's ward. Yeah. And she, so she's entertaining these young children. Yeah, and she's all happy all of a sudden again. And then she tells them, or she tells John, rather, that the clairvoyant uh, lady told her that she could see Christine dancing around and playing in between them. At which point, um, John says, Oh, Laura, which says it all, really. Right. Thousand words there. Exactly, yeah. So, yeah, John is just fucking not impressed by this. And, I mean, would you be? Well, no, but it's funny because of how that plays out. I mean, John is exceptionally skeptical at this point. But uh, it turns out, as things progress, that maybe he has some kind of skill himself into second sight. Yes, that's right. Now, hold on. There's, so this is a trope in film history, basically, uh, that there is a couple and the woman believes some uh, supernatural stuff and the man is like, No! They say, no, this is nonsense. What are you talking about? So some kind of like reverse X-Files. I can't think of any example of what you're describing, but I'm sure there is. Yes, so am I. Of where the, of where I was the hoping woman you'd be is. able to. Nope, I gave you the opposite. Yeah, you did. <laughs> In a TV show, which is about as opposite as you can get. I'm... Um, no, I can't think of an example of that trope at all. Maybe in like a religious type thing. Where the, the Shining, religious... maybe? It's been such a long time. Wait, so she, the the wife, yeah, Wendy believes is all... in stuff and the husband doesn't? Wendy is... Uh... Jack, there's a crazy woman in the room. She tried to stangle Danny. And then Jack Nicholson says, are you out of your fucking mind? That's good. That's a, that's a good uh, Nicholson. Thank you. I've seen that one a lot. Anyway, anyway, anyway. So John, not impressed by this theory of Laura's. And then they get out of the hospital and they're taking the boat back. And there's a, a, a clog in one of the canals because presumably because they're fishing a body out. And John gets a... They do a lot of that. A lot of body fishing John, in the old Venice canals. John gets an old stare down from the chief of police. Um, which, yeah, again, is just one of those creepy background characters. Why is he being so creepy? 
Which one's the chief of police? I don't even. I mean, well, the, he we, we learn on. who he is later, but um, when they're oh, is it is it, is it uh, the inspector guy? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Renato Scarpa, that guy is he is extremely disconcerting. It's quite funny because when he speaks to John later on, like he apparently he uh, didn't speak English at all. So they had him doing his like ex again extremely creepy line readings of a language he didn't speak. But yeah, he's uh, he's it's I wouldn't enjoy seeing him staring at me. Uh, yeah. So it's, this is at this point we've got Laura kind of emotionally all freed up and kind of in touch with her grief, and um, John just plodding along in his work. And there's actually just a it's a recurring kind of an image um, or motif that they build up whereby you would see Laura uh, interacting with those sisters and then you, uh, or, you know, falling back on her natural female support group and then men just working. You work men and men working away. I, I felt like that's what, uh, that was another thing I, I picked up on. I might've just been imagining it when they're, they, John gets in kind of a, a traffic jam on the canal there. Do you know what I mean? I, mm. I, it's just something that it, like I, I felt kept it kept building up as contrast to Laura getting all in touch with herself with the clairvoyant sisters. Anyway, um, so they stop at a church where she lights like ten candles, being all spiritual, while John tests out a light switch. Okay, <laughs> I remember her right uh, lighting all the candles, but yeah, and then I don't he's remember just him playing with a switch. He's just playing. No, it's like a string. So, so okay. to see is this light working. So that that's, again, this kind of contrast that I'm talking about. She's being all spiritual with her lovely candles. Right. And he's like, doing he's like this, this yeah, thing on, a bit does this manual. work? <laughs> um, yeah, not, again, not impressed with this whole idea. Then they meet up with this, um, with this bishop who gives us a healthy load of symbolism, all the while Donald Sutherland in this scene um, debuts his Doctor Who look. It's the first time we see him with a, a lovely blue jacket and a red scarf. That's the same color as Christine's jacket draped around his neck. He also has a lovely uh, kind of perm. Donald Sutherland. Yeah. And a nice bum. Yeah, well, yeah, we'll get to that. We'll see it in a minute. So there's some obvious symbolism here where they chat with the bishop and uh, the bishop's crucifix just kind of um, closes itself off from John as a way of kind of not offering him spiritual support in what might be in his time of need, while at the same time the bishop basically says, uh, Oh, Laura, you're looking well. You're looking like you've gotten over the death of your daughter. And she's like, Why, thank you very much. Yes, bishop, I'm feeling much better. Oh, wait, yeah, and she, like, kisses the ring, right? Yes, that's right. Yeah. Um, and he's basically observing for us putting into words for us the fact that she's feeling better after having chatted with the with the clairvoyant sisters well at, right. then while john turns to him and shakes his hand and there's a close-up of the bishop's golden crucifix and the jacket just kind of closes over it shrouds it right. it's very it's you know it's like the end of the departed the rat symbolizes obviousness yeah <laughs> okay fair play um Anyway, and then we've got Donald Sutherland dressed as Doctor Who, but Donald Sutherland being dressed as Doctor Who does not stop him getting some of the most explicit hanky-panky you'll see this side of the 1980s. So, Yeah, this, was, uh, this sex scene, again, was extremely controversial. He mm. performs cunnilingus on film. 
which uh, it's not something you see that frequently. Um, well, I mean, these maybe in the movies you watch. <laughs> There's a lot of it in Banshee. That's true, but then again, I don't know if Banshee should be held up as the example of how most sex is filmed in film or television. Given that, like, Cinemax has uh, the reputation of showing, basically trying to build a narrative around shagging. Man, what's with all the Banshee hate all of a sudden? You sound like my fucking girlfriend. <clears throat> I don't hate Banshee at all. I don't. Banshee turned me on to uh, the band Dusted. All right, well. And so, yeah, I started listening to it. So check out the band Dusted quality. Nice. And check out the TV show Banshee, which you can find on HBO yeah. Cinemax. It's very nice. Anyway. So yeah, they have a load of rumpity pumpity. And um, by uh, the the big question, of course, is is it real? Did they shag? Was it for real? Yeah. So yeah. there was apparently a, a semi closed set that day, and a lot of uh, some people who were on the closed set have um, circulated rumors for years that it was in fact real. Apparently, Warren Beatty, who was going out with uh, Julie yeah. Christie at the time, was uh, very He's annoyed because he heard that it was real. And um, <laughs> I mean. Come on, Warren Beatty, you can't be mad at something like that, considering your reputation. Come on, Warren Beatty, fuck That's off. That's true. My, my favorite quote about it was the guy, Peter Bart, who was a former Variety editor. Uh, he wrote in his book, Infamous Players, A Tale of Movies, The Mob and Sex. Uh, he said he was on set that day when this was being filmed and he could clearly see Sutherland's penis moving in and out of Christie. <laughs> <laughs> Which I just think... <laughs> clearly! That is, that, is, that is like the inspector level of creepiness. Oh, God. I saw his penis clearly, clearly moving in and out. It's like it, it, at times it disappeared, and then I could see it again. It's like he he's in the corner trying to you know um, trying to enjoy the craft services, and she, oh my oh my word, uh, <laughs> Nicholas Rowe, go away! Is there, is there something wrong? It's like it's just, I, I, his penis is clearly going inside uh, Miss Christie over there. Yes, um, yes. Don, Donald Sutherland. Donald Sutherland was around my age when this was filmed, and. I think I'm approaching getting Donald Sutherland body. So he's a tall man. That's 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 fine. He that's the big that's the difference. He weighs himself in it, and I was like, yeah, he was he like weighs about the same as me, five or something. When I saw his weight, I was like, how the fuck are you that heavy? But then I lo- I I went to Wikipedia to see how tall he was. Oh, yeah, he's a big tall fella. I was I was I was disturbed by his weight, but he's got twelve centimeters on me. Height wise, wow, Jesus, he's that I big. Know, I don't know about penis wise. He's one ninety two. Jesus, he's a big man. Yeah, he's a big, he's a big boy. So yeah, I was kind of disturbed because he doesn't look like he has any muscle. He's a big and man. Yet he weighs like eighty five. He's a big goofy looking yoke as well. Like, yeah, he's, he's not he's, handsome. This it is it is amazing. Like, he's a good actor, mm. but like, you wonder like, how the hell did this guy end up in like leading man status? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of that going around in the seventies. I suppose they were just into their mm. charismatic faces. Like Elliot Gould's another fella. Uh, right. You know, yeah. Just, just an odd looking duck. I'm obviously, um, uh, taking the, the two of them together, thinking about, um, uh, mash. Um, but like right. Julie Christie is just, so staggeringly beautiful like she's just such a beautiful I human no no in her face i'm not 100 i don't know if i her mouth seems a bit weird not trying but when she's when she's rolling around with donald Sutherland, oh. do you think yeah okay oh. all right anyway all right. but yeah the the sex scene is um, cut together with them getting dressed afterwards which 
I'm going to ask you, do you think there's much of a point to this besides the arty uh, achievement of it? What does it... I, I, as far as I'm aware, the, the justification for it... I mean, I don't think it needs to be... I've, I would I have similar things to raise about about walkabout maybe, but like mm. the justification for it was supposed to be that Nicholas Rogue just didn't want scenes of um, of the couple fighting all the time. So I guess this was about as far in the opposite direction as he could. No, manage. but I mean the the way he superimposes them, like like so he cuts it together with them getting dressed after they fuck. Oh yeah, no, I mean I think that's I think that's just the. St- artistic flair unless it's supposed to in some way represent there are elements of this where scenes are shot out of order almost or i mean you're seeing things that are happening at a different time Mm. um based on you know the the whole second sight nature of the story yeah but then i think it's i think it's just an arty i think it's because the a lot of the the editing style is quite similar to walkabout i think these are just artistic choices i think i I think in terms of the sex sorry continue i was just gonna say it um it's funny because one of the films i read that was compared to it was um out of sight the sex scene in that so which is Mm. again is not surprising because like steven saw this is another one similar to when we were talking about point blank Mm. this is another film that steven soderbergh uh really liked and has said had uh, a big impact on his filmmaking yeah you can see that in stuff like traffic and the the limey again yeah yeah, especially especially yeah the back back to the limey again yeah anyway yes i like it as an artist because it kind of it just makes it seem like yeah just a not an intimate moment just quite like an intimate scene because just like for example just before they have sex you've got them like very clinically just like he weighs himself he goes back to his desk uh, bare arse naked she has a bath he has a shower and then when they kind of when they become intimate i suppose that stretches into the whole them getting dressed for dinner afterwards and it just makes it kind of a nice moment uh yeah you can you can see how close they are um how they they still love each other. Mm. It's kind of interesting to me that they seem to have ditched their kid at a boarding school, their their son. So they had a son and a daughter. The daughter died, um, and then they just sent their kid, their boy, off to boarding school. And they're like, "Fuck this! Let's go to Venice." I mean, it's for Donald Sutherland's job, but still, that seems kind of par for the course was, from was, back was, in the day. To be honest, were done, yeah, I yeah, guess. yeah. If you could afford to, like, yeah, it seems like yeah. it would have been par for the course. Yeah, and so then they're um, they're heading out of the hotel, and uh, the manager says, uh, "You're gonna eat in the restaurant tonight," and they say, "No, no." Uh, oh yeah, but before they're going, actually, uh, Donald Sutherland kind of says, "Let's not have another incident," referring to, of course, when she smashed up the <laughs> table. Uh, anyway, and then um, even though the manager seems to be beckoning them in to eat in the restaurant, then it cuts to the restaurant and everything's covered in white sheets, which is odd. I didn't get that. I think I might have missed something. It, it's. I think yeah. I, he's just asking if like. They're the last, this is the end of the tourist season yeah. and they're the last guests in the hotel. So they're the only, the, the kitchen was only open for them, is my understanding. And then they said, no, we're going out. Mm. So he tells the cook to go, he tells the cook to leave. By the way, one of the, I, I was going to ask this, like one of the choices, the, the stylistic choices that Rogue made was 
not to translate any of the Italian. Yeah, I like that. They wanted to have that kind of feeling of, mm. of maybe, you know, I've seen that in films before, yeah. English speaking viewers. English speaking viewers being having a similar experience to or well even the the the, the two main characters can communicate reasonably but we well, can't. but um we can't, well. Mm. Presumably, I as I mentioned, I live in Italy now. I've only been here a few weeks, but I've still like picked up bits and pieces. And both of us speak Spanish, which is mm. reasonable. It's close enough to get. Yeah, 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 yeah. I can, so, I can basically like, did, follow. What's did you happening. kind of follow? Yeah, you've kind of followed. But it's a nice on. effect. My understanding. Like... <clears throat> yeah, I, I think so. I think it works well. My understanding of that scene was that the the hotel owner was basically saying to the chef, like, "Yeah, you can you can fuck yeah, off. Yeah. You can go home because they're they've gone out." Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. So it's it, that's all it is. It's just that the the hotel was like closing down, and they were the only guests. They used that technique um, to great effect in another film called um, what's it called? It's one of uh, Barbarian Sound Studio. Have you seen that? <laughs> uh, never mind. Is that a answer. real thing? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a that sounds a hundred percent made up. No, no, no. Um, Peter Strickland made it. Uh, so, have you heard about the Italian uh, giallo? I don't know. Am I, am I pronouncing that? The giallo movies, the likes of Suspiria and Phenomena, and yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think at least one person. There's at least one cast member. Oh, I'm sure there are. Yeah. In Suspiria. I can't remember who, but there there certainly are. Um, I think I would imagine it's the old crone from the bathroom, all dressed in black. But anyway, uh, so Barbarian Sound Studio is um, what's his name? I think it might be Timothy Spall. Maybe he plays a sound Timothy? effects yeah. expert who goes over to a sound studio in Italy to record sound effects. Oh wait, is this is this the one that they remade into? Like the hmm? Brian De Palma one? No, 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 no. You're thinking of um, Blow Up. Blow Out. Blow, blow Up versus Blow Out. No. Blow uh, Up, yeah, so sorry. He pops over there to, and he ha- like he's basically hammering through loads of watermelons to make um, sound effects for this film. And then as he doesn't speak any Italian. And as the film progresses, he feels like maybe he might be soundtracking a snuff movie, which is odd. But they use the same technique in that like it's not subtitled at all on purpose uh, and it's just supposed to give you this disorientating feeling and i think it works it works there and it works uh, it works here anyway then they get they get lost in venice um a little bit and they just run into just a sh- uh, just a shitty little kind of an alleyway canal i'm sure venice is full of areas like this and there's rats and stuff like that and it's it's fairly this is the venice that i want to i want to go off the beaten track and see if there is still some of this there well yeah it's just, it like i'm sure there is because i mean what are they going to mm. do with it that's what it's that kind of shit that people yeah. really are going to venice to see they want to see the fi- the right. the city that was built on a lagoon and there's no giving that fucking city a yeah. makeover for better or worse you know so they get like they seem lost in there um and like there's rats and shit like that. And then two seconds later, they find themselves kind of back on a sort of a tourist strip shop street, for want of a better word. And I think basically what they're the general structure and layout of Venice seems to the, he what Nicholas Rogue is going for is, I don't know, some kind of a physical metaphor for you know the the human mind in in states like this in states like grief which is that you know you're just two seconds away from some dark horrible alleyway full of rats something like that that's what mm-hmm. i got from it anyway so then we cut to the next day and you've got men at work versus women and their damn emotions 
so it's, it's got Donald Sutherland up on a scaffolding with a bunch of men trying to put a statue on a church like a man. It's funny because I feel like Men at, men at Work would fit better with the other film. Dun, 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 dun. Is that your... Yeah, yeah, that's the start of the song. All right, okay, sorry. It probably wasn't good. Anyway, so yeah, he continues with his pragmatic approach to spirituality, which is restoring churches, while Laura gets invited to a seance. And he ends up face-to-face with a statue that, by coincidence or not, looks quite like the figure that we encounter near the end of the film. Anyway, um... She gets invited to a seance by the two old crones, and um, when by the time he gets down off the church, like the church on which he's working and bringing home the bacon, by the time he gets down, he finds out that she's accepted an invitation to go to a seance with these two old crones. So he's he's laugh he's he's walking along, gets kind of mad, cuts to the two old crones laughing insanely in the room for some reason. <laughs> that is the that again that's just that like i mentioned earlier this there's really really unsettling shots of characters being creepy yeah, just, and there's nothing worse than a blind lady and her sister laughing alone in a room for no reason inherent creepiness yeah that's just Ugh. but uh, that's like the witches basically but then you get what is really genuinely the most horrifying thing in the film which is Laura says to John, you let her play near the pond. So like... Yeah, controversial, controversial attack there. Have you seen Manchester by the Sea? Yes. Do you know the part where... um, Spoilers Manchester by the Sea. Uh, You know the part where... Casey Affleck lets his children burn to death. Where Casey Affleck um, runs into Michelle Williams and then she goes, I should burn in hell for the things I said to you. Uh, she says a lot. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. In my best Massachusetts yeah, yeah, yeah. accent. When she's 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 pushing and the like she's got her, her, her new child yeah. in her pram. Yeah. In the Basically street, yeah. Laura says something yeah, like yeah, that yeah. to John I mean, here, but she right. says it with a fucking smile on her face. She just says, Well I mean, you let her play near the pond. It's like, Whoa man. What the hell? That is some harsh shit. And then she follows it up by saying, Maybe she wants to pr- Oh yeah, and then John says John being a real man, John says, oh, thanks for the memories there, honey. Uh, which, I mean, man, honestly, maybe men are just entitled to be more sensitive these days than the 1970s. But honestly, in a situation like that, I would almost, if somebody said something like that to me, if that was the situation, I would nearly throw myself in the fucking canal. Good God, he how takes that time, like a champ. How much, time, how much time is supposed to have passed between the death to this point is it, i don't think it's ever... mentioned um because we... we don't even see do, do we even see how old the other boy is now no it can't be that no. long it can't be more than a couple of years oh no we do but we see him he looks about the same it can't even be that long it's just uh, but i think that's kind of the point of it i think uh, like i think that we just jump ahead in time and they still haven't dealt with their grief they still haven't dealt mm. with it. Yeah, yeah, that's that's true. That's what this is all about. Um. Anyway, so yeah, ugh. They, I just can't believe she said that. God damn it! So then we've got the séance. Um, during which um the blind sister rub rubs her breasts in a mad agony. Mm. Is this the point? I, I can't recall exactly. Is this the point where we find out that John might be a bit psychic himself? At some point. 
the blind lady suggests that John has that he's got the shinning. He's got the shin, but I think it's probably around this point. Yeah. So in the seance, they pop over, they offer her a glass of whiskey, and then they sit down, and then the blind sister the with the second side starts madly rubbing her breasts and it's just a, it's a it's a, it's a odd creepy scene um like all of them meanwhile john is wandering around i think trying to find laura but i'm not quite sure what's happening in that scene and then oh yeah yeah he is he's outside the door and then a couple of other people because they're staying in a hotel mm. so some of the other guests start asking him. Yeah, they start asking him. And que cosa fare? Que cosa fare? And then this guy, this uh, guy in a red uh, kimono, comes out and accuses him of being a pervert. And there's that color red. He says sh- English, English. Yeah. The guy, that's that's Donald Sutherland's approach. He's like, it's okay, English. Uh, he gets chased out, being called a pervert, and then he pops along to a bar, um, which is exactly. Uh, just little dirty bars like that they're the only kind of thing that I sometimes look at and I think oh I miss that about drinking which is exactly why it was a good idea for me to give up Um, Mm. anyway he seems to get smashed but doesn't act it very well because like he ends up vomiting and stuff later but I, I don't buy that too much he doesn't seem smashed to me um isn't that just bad acting I think it's bad acting yeah uh, I don't know why, I mean, I would assume a lot of actors, when they have to be smashed for a scene, just get smashed. Just, just, just get drunk, yeah. Do, wh- this was the 1970s, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, like, someone someone who was a bit more method maybe would have just gone out and got pissed. I don't know what Donald Sutherland was, what his, what his technique was. Anyway, so he get he he sees Laura come down the street. He said they they head back to the hotel room. They don't get um they don't have their dirty dirty sex this time. But at this point, Laura tells him that he is in danger and he needs to get out of Venice now because Christine has told her through the mad blind sister. And he at this point he's fucking had enough. He's vomiting from all the booze and stuff, and he's just saying she's dead. She's dead, Laura. She's dead. He says that a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, he does indeed. Then she basically, through his anger, she says, "Oh, maybe, maybe I am uh, reacting a bit strongly to this. Maybe, yeah, maybe I should take my pills." And he immediately, without missing a beat, goes, "They're on the desk." <laughs> like, yes, you definitely, definitely should. They head off to bed, and uh, then they get a phone call from their son Johnny's principal who's up uh, with his wife and this kind of further supports uh, my theory a little bit that um, the film is a bit about the masculine versus the feminine versus yeah I've seen I've I read about this part about how the headmaster the male answers the phone and is fairly useless and his wife grabs the phone and kind of starts explaining because ah so there are the theories ladies, that support the ladies, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah 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 the ladies in the film can communicate mm. and the men are kind of incapable yes 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 absolutely so he's just babbling away like an idiot and then she just yeah. grabs the phone and gives the frank necessary information um mm. and then it's decided upon that Julie Christie's going to immediately fly back to England because their son is sick. And at this point, then we see John 
in a red kimono drinking from a glass that has a red bod bottom on it so troubles are brewing we're getting all the signals that with uh, the chaotic feminine him. abandoning him all his order and ineptitude at facing his grief is going to fucking come back and eat him anyway then he leaves Laura off on the boat uh, the next day and he's back into the church with the bishop there and he hops he's got mosaics and he wants to compare them to the mosaic the original mosaics in the church and he mm-hmm. hops up on the worst scaffolding ever is <laughs> 1970s italian health and i don't even is. think that was acceptable back then it's Fair dodgy it's fucking insane um, it's excellently shot, though. Jesus, because I re yeah, I rewatched it. it. Like, yeah, different perspectives. There's the cameras. There's cameras all over the place. Like, oh, it's fa- it's like it's from from up shot. on the top of the scaffolding. Mm. I mean, what happens is that it goes wrong, and and Donald Sutherland ends up kind of hanging. Yeah. From a thread, which apparently he shot that he was the stunt man for that scene and very nearly died performing. I heard the stunt. that. Yeah. I've heard that yeah. before, um, but um, my God, it's just like it goes to show, like uh, Nick Rogue applying all his editing smarts to emotional stuff, but then when it just came down to like a a, a multi-camera action set piece, my God, like he nailed it. Yeah, because he he put the camera in positions that no one else would have. Mm. Oh yeah, yeah. He does a lot. He does. He does a lot of that. He does a lot of that. I think that's that was one of his great skills. I mean, he did a lot of things of like, uh, like focus, like focus pulling and kind of crazy zooming in. This seems quite frequent. And actually, yeah, uh, it's interesting. Did you in the or this week? Did you watch Don't Look Now or Walkabout first? I always watch them in the order of the the winner first and the companion Ah, right, second. okay, because in this case, I, I watch them in order of his filmography. And let's just mm-hmm. say, for, like, Don't Look Now, he learned a bit of subtlety with what he does, and it, it worked for the benefit of the film completely. Uh, yeah, the, this uh, scene with the accident in the church has a real feel of uh, the final destination off of it, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and the, and the particularly then a classy version of that. Yeah. And also, yeah, we've got the uh, clairvoyant sister's face superimposed on the light as he climbs up onto yeah. the dodgy scaffolding, yeah. which gives us a bit of a prophecy. And then the bishop says, "I wish I didn't have to believe in prophecy," <laughs> which is yeah, it's, it kind of goes to the man who regrets his religion. Well, yeah, religion is his business. That's what he says. Prophecy is my business. Mm-hmm. Then anyway, as um, John gets out of there, to, like he's feeling, whew, he's a bit uh, hard. Yeah, a good time. No, he's a bit put upon by uh, the, almost dying there. And then he sees a body being fished out of the canal. A real nasty one this time, a lady being fished out upside down and you can see her underpants into her tights. It's, it's, it's nasty. Mm-hmm. It's a nasty sort of a thing. Yeah. So they're pulling bodies out of the canal. As you do. There's a serial killer going around. Yeah, this this is that's. If I do have an issue with this film, it's I just I, the serial killer element feels a bit of a sort of Deus Ex Machina. Like it just I I get that it's okay. Yeah, it's, I can't marry them seeded, together. The two. It it's been seeded that there is a killer. Kind of. There's bodies being fished out of the out of the canals, as you mentioned, but. When the killer is finally revealed, the, my takeaway is just like, really? 
Yeah, because the killer it's... seems like a manifestation in that case. So right. then why are there yeah, all these yeah. other actual victims? That's the that's the issue, really, for me. Well, no, no, I, I do believe, like, okay, I'll wait until we get yeah, to Yeah, the, yeah, to yeah, that's what I have written down here. Like, shall we we'll wait till it. the ending? But anyway. Yeah, yeah, So then yeah. he's buggering away from that and he sees Laura. Now, um, I have to ask, I had seen this a few times. You saw this, you saw Laura on the boat with the two sisters. Did you believe it? When I you... did not understand. I didn't understand what it was. Okay, so you did. Uh, yeah, yeah, I did. I did. I believed that she had returned to Venice. I think I believed what you're supposed to believe. Mm. I believed what John Baxter believes. Yeah, that Laura is in Venice. It wasn't until the film ended that I realized the actual. Yeah, because I couldn't remember how I felt it. the first time I'd seen it, so I was I was wondering after. Yeah, you, but... no, no, it definitely you you. But again, I did know the ending mm. to an extent, but I didn't really understand what it all meant because I hadn't seen the entire film. So, um, yeah, I, it, it worked. It and and in retrospect, I think even without watching it a second time. Because you see images later on in the film as it's all kind of played out that I think it it works really well. Mm. I think it's a very effective idea. And I think it's, to me, it's that's like the centerpiece that the whole film works, uh, is all based around that, that one image. Of him seeing apart Laura. Apart from the other. Yeah, apart from the, the, the kind of the, the girl in the red coat, obviously, but... Like that, well, that one scene is kind of what makes the whole thing function. And when I think back and on that on that image, that's the thing that makes me like the film the most. Nice. But again, we can come to that a bit more when it's when we're all done. Anyway, yeah. So, at the, this he starts losing his marbles and starts scarpering around the city looking for Laura. First of all, he bothers the hotel manager having just <laughs> closed the hotel, which is funny. I thought I thought that was a funny not, little scene. No, he's like, "Hey, is that my uh, day off? Oh, fuck off!" Oh. Um, and then what has did has his room been ransacked or, or something? There was something I didn't understand there. He goes and the room's just a mess. What's happened? I don't know. I didn't understand that. I don't know. I thought you'd, maybe the police had been around. I have no idea. I just thought like he was getting kicked out. It was. He's getting kicked out of the hotel because it's the end of the season. I don't know. Maybe they just chucked all it was his odd shit. Odd anyway. So then he goes to the cops and gives this uh, strange. It gives a, a description of the two sisters, a drawing description, and then. He has his uh, weird interview with the chief inspector, which is just odd. What's the point of that scene? I suppose it's just to disorientate you because I'm watching it go. Yeah, again, it's just a creepy character actor again. Because he just goes, what what is it that you fear? Um, (laughs) Which is, I mean, (laughs) come on. But then it was also... A little on the nose. the, the The other purpose of it is to try and, for them... Because they're kind of framing Donald Sutherland as uh, as perhaps a, the 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 murderer, so it, they you know send their yeah. officer to follow him. Yeah, around. is that why they follow him? I have that. Why do they follow him? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. They follow him because the inspector guy gets the vibe that um the that the Donald Sutherland is uh, the baddie, so that's why he sends uh, one of his detectives out. To follow John Baxter, aka Donald Sutherland. Anyway, Laura's in England, and Laura calls him at the Bishops. I think she reaches him at the Bishops. First of all, it's a call from Johnny's school with them, um, Mrs. Babel, saying, "Yeah, everything's all right. Uh, he, he he recovered straight away." And then all of a sudden, Laura's on the phone. Now, were you surprised by that? 
Yes, I mean, because I believed that she was in Venice, but then when that happened, it calls into question the whole thing of like, Mm. he is seeing things at this point then, definitely. He is seeing things which may or may not be there. And based on the fact that Laura is in in England, then yeah. And were you surprised that they caught the the lady from the sketch? Which actually, at this point, she just seems oh, like yeah, a poor, yeah. a poor victim in his odd game. She's just a yeah, poor so old they, blind lady so in a cop shop. The police arrest the the sisters. Mm. Uh, so it, is that the next scene that Donald Sutherland goes and yeah, uh, he has to go and get the goes to the goes to um, and he feels really bad the, about well, it. Um, he goes around to the police station to to pick up Heather. And he walks her home and she lady. always, she says that mm-hmm. uh, very tellingly, she says that she finds very, Venice very safe to walk in at night because you can hear well around it. Um, mm-hmm. So the so there you go, the clairvoyant woman finds Venice safe to walk around. Yeah, then John drops her off and he leaves and then she starts having this fit for the sister to go and get John and bring him back, bring him back, bring him back, bring him back. Is that what she says? Yeah. I knew she was like fitting and saying something. And then Laura arrives and she is sent to fetch him. Yeah, that's what she says. Fetch him, fetch him, fetch him. I know because Belen asked me, what does fetch mean? And I said, that is so fetch. Nice. And then Belen said, stop trying to make fetch happen. It's not going to happen. Mm. Nice, is that, nice, crisp, do, do, mean do girls reference there. Yeah, yeah, uh, I got it. Yes. <laughs> do you, do, is that how you spend your your spend your evenings? Uh, that that and clueless references, and if, and nice. with the odd bit of uh, ten things I hate about you, the shit hath hitted the fan. Anyway, if Ni- it must be Nigel with the brie. Anyway, 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 <laughs> getting getting off track here. Uh, yeah, so then, yeah, Laura is sent out to get him back, and then the bishop wakes up because prophecy is his business. Now, mm-hmm. so he spots a figure that the little uh, that's it. he, you mean Donald Sutherland, Donald Sutherland, John Baxter. So he spots this uh, little a girl uh, in a red coat red, just like his uh, recently deceased daughter no because she's got a plastic mac and this one is kind of a distortion of that see this is the thing it's like is it this is the figure that he ha- he's seen at the start in the picture of the church window do you remember yes. yeah yeah and then yeah 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 i mean because he he cuts himself and and spills blood as well yeah. over the image yeah yeah at the start. so what well, mike mike thing is is when he starts chasing this figure is he like chasing his daughter is he just chasing the figure he's seen around venice a couple of times what's exactly happening i i have all i i mean from what i first heard about this film Mm. i would take it i would have to take it as he's just chasing his daughter at this point Mm. but he's also as we've already established he's very skeptical although it, you know, it's clear that he he knows he's seeing things, or he knows he's you know seeing things that possibly aren't there. Um, but the way he interacts with her and talks to her, it doesn't sound like he thinks it's his daughter because mm. he's saying like, yeah, "It's okay." True. He's speaking you know, Italian like, too. Yeah, he's not. He's not saying. You know, why does he's he not lock calling the her door? Christine, I think. What do you mean when he enters into the whatever that place, whatever is. the area yeah, yeah, is? Yeah, yeah. He, like he, he locks goes the in door. And he locks the door behind him. It's odd. No idea. Yeah. 
And like, so, and, and, okay, right. Just to get to it, yeah. Then we've got this super so here we famous go. ending where classic denouement. He's approaching the um, little girl in the red jacket, and he's saying, "I'm your friend. It's okay." We're uh, and then um, she turns. He, I think he, but does doesn't he realize even before she turns, or is it when she turns and she's like, "No." That he starts realizing and puts it all together. I'm not sure. I mean, I'm gonna take it through it bit by bit. So it's been like I, the first okay. time I even the even thinking about this image mm. kind of freaks me out. Dude, I it's just, even knowing about it is is disturbing. So horrible. E- even know, yeah. like because the first time I saw it, now I was shocked by it, and I didn't know how famous it was. I m- I must have seen it. I like I saw it years ago. Um, I'll tell you. I'm I'm looking at it right now. So he. After he goes into the thing, he says, I'm a friend. And then he says, I won't hurt you. And he says, come on. And he looks really disturbing. Like his face is disturbing. And then it cuts to an image of the, yeah, okay, no, she turns. And then she, and then he says, wait, wait. And she's, she's shaking her head. And that's when the bishop wakes up and we're cutting some imagery and she pulls out the knife, and that's when you start. And then she hits him, like mm. kind of stabs him in the throat. And that's where you get all the imagery just starts coming out of yeah, like yeah. Um, the, the whole movie, basically. Every yeah, the, you're just seeing like all these things, and that's the the realization that everything have all these things have been premonitions mm. leading up to his own death, and that he actually has second sight. And it also shows that like yeah, that he saw his own funeral cortege that's what he when he saw his wife on the boat with the with the two sisters it was actually something from the future so this because it is the the funeral cortege for his funeral this figure uh, what wikipedia refers to as a hideous female dwarf um like is that a manifestation of something or is that literally just a hideous female dwarf I, that as murders? far as i'm aware as far as i'm aware it's there's just it might be unusual, but the serial killer is a dwarf, a hideous dwarf. So, like, and that's and it's just, just it. It's, I don't think there's nothing special about it. The baddie is a midget. It's that's it. It's and it's just some coincidence that she's dressed the same way his daughter was the day she died. Presumably, that, that does that mean even his daughter's death was part of the premonitions of his own death? <laughs> I mean, yeah, <laughs> like there's the, yeah, some yeah, connection. There. No, no, no. Yeah, I, the, the thought did occur to me, like how it's wound up. Uh, like, yeah, I basically think on account of there being a serial killer, there then there are just loose ends to this, which I just it seems that the film is thematically going one way and then. Don't... Well, this is because I th- does this not ju- is this not just kind of a problem of the fact that he didn't write the story, the original story. Mm. So this is still an element from the. Daphne du Maurier book that the killer was a dwarf. Like it's almost like, a Scooby Doo type ending. It is. It is because it's like, oh wow, you know, like she has no relevance at all to the story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just, it's just kind of like a Tales of the Unexpected type thing. It, it has no, there's no connection to anything else. It, as I said, I said earlier, they were trying to, they seeded the idea that there's a killer on the loose. But I guess you're just not. No one expects the the hideous dwarf. Well, I, yeah, but I, I, you know, it's interesting though, because like, 
um, yeah, I watched it with my girlfriend. I watched it with Belen. She'd never seen it before. And yeah, she gasped when the... Because like, no matter how many times you've seen it, it, it like he paces that turnaround just so yeah. so perfectly so no matter how many yeah. times you've seen it you're still like i i've seen it yeah i've definitely i've seen it three times maybe four and even when i was re-watching that scene specifically today it's just slow enough that you're kind of going come on just turn around fucking turn around already yeah you wanted to turn uh, around. Yeah, just it's just so funny because he as soon as he sees her, he puts the whole thing together in his head, mm. and that's what they start showing you all the the flashes of, flashes of imagery. It's just that is the type of Nicholas Rogue editing that I really like. Yeah, it, and I think that carries on into Walkabout. I mean, well, obviously Walkabout was prior to this film, but and I th- does it, I like so those it, it does work for editing. you? It, like I, it works for me too. I like it. Yeah, I yeah. really like it. I th- I like that style of editing a lot. Well, like yeah, I like I, I just like that, uh, like Nicholas Nicholas Rogue is, it, it approaches filmmaking like, uh, okay, what are my tools? Okay, I'm going to use every one of them to the yeah, um, fucking degree, them, sure. like you know to yeah. to to do my thing, um, because yeah, you're it could just easily be tales from the crypt kind of schlock, but his like his use of his uh, filmmaker yeah, he, tools he elevates just elevates the material. Yeah, yeah, completely. He elevates the material because like the this is based on as I said, it's like a Daphne du Maurier short story. It doesn't seem like there was an awful lot to it. And they haven't even fleshed out they haven't even fleshed it out that much in terms of the plot or characters or anything. It's just it's the imagery that's so strong in the film that mm. that's kind of what carries it. Anyway, so uh, more than anything, just uh, two thumbs up there. <laughs> I really enjoyed it. I yeah, liked me it too. A lot. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's it's all it's it's had a massive influence on so many other films, including like In Bruges, is uh, is massively influenced by this. You think? Yeah, like yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah. The, I suppose the, I, w- the I would have never thought about that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. What they're what they're filming in the film is supposedly kind of is. Uh, I think what's her name, Chloe, the 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 girl says it's a pastiche of Don't Look Now. Yeah, and, and they're which is a very Martin a, McDonough way to acknowledge midget. the fact that it's, it's got a midget. It in does it. have a midget. Yes, they're uh, filming midgets. <laughs> I shouldn't be the one doing that line. That should be you doing that line. <laughs> they're making a film about midgets. <laughs> Honestly, that's one of my favorite films ever. It is. It's one of my favorite uh, films as well. I can't believe we've both seen it. We need to find something that to match that to match in Bruges with, so that I can rewatch it again. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, quite sure. a few times. Yeah, yeah, so. me too. But I'd watch it any time, and I, I just yeah, like yeah, I laugh as chaotic, chaotically as at the lines from it as I do like rewatching the yeah. Father Ted fucking Christmas special. <laughs> it's just so fucking yeah. good. Anyway, anyway, um, I was playing with this bra, and it pinged back and hit me in the <laughs> eyes. <It's gone> <laughs> Uh, it's not Christmas until Todd Umptious shows up in the nude. <laughs> uh, okay. I just there's one thing I don't get. You you were already dressed as a <laughs> priest. Why did you? Why did you take his clothes? Uh, wow. It was the just night going, was just that, going that way. way. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Right. Right. Yes. Check out Father Ted <laughs> and in Bruges. Yeah, yeah, we we got to find figure a way to bring it back around to Father the Father Ted Christmas special, the greatest thing ever filmed. 
Um, yeah. So the film that I responded with was Walkabout. Walkabout? Introduce Walkabout? us to Walkabout. So this was Nicholas Rogue's second film after Performance. His first um, as the solo director. Although, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So although released in 1971... It actually started filming in 1969, which was important when it came to Jenny Agatha and her uh, lady parts. And her boobies. So Rogue, yeah. Rogue was also the cinematographer in this film. It's an adaptation of the 1959 James Vance Marshall novel of the same name about a couple of white, white children <laughs> lost in the outback who survive <laughs> thanks to the help of a young Aborigine boy. The film had a Why budget of around. Why do you say whiskey around, weird? What cool whip? Uh, the film had a budget of around one million Australian dollar redos, <laughs> and was not <laughs> factually accurate. <laughs> dollar redos, and it, it was nominated for the Palm Door. Like a lot, of, so many of the films we've watched so far were nominated for the Palm Door, like Chronicles of Riddick and Riddick. <laughs> and Riddick yes. I mean, we only mentioned Pitch Black in passing, but still, it got yeah. a mention. Uh, okay, so I mentioned I mentioned last week that I both read the book and watched the film at school. That's what you did. And when I was when I yeah when I was watching this again, I realized that like some of the imagery from this film is burned into my brain. Mm. How much How much did you know about this before going into it? The bare bones of the plot. That's it. That's it. Just the bare, it. the bare Just, bones of the they, plot. They were they were. That they were kind of stranded out in the outback. yeah, and they run into and, an uh, Aboriginal, young Aboriginal boy on his on his vision quest type thing. I knew, like, I knew the bare bones. Yeah, so I must. Have, I think I was around thirteen when I saw this. It's kind of mental to me that the teachers showed this to my class when we were, you know, in in. I guess I would. I guess I was in like first or second year of secondary school, but like. The film originally got it got an R rating, which was then reduced down to a PG on appeal. And because of the changes to to laws to over the years, the kind of in uh, indecency laws, they've the BBFC have like reviewed the film multiple times, and now I think it's rated at a twelve. Hmm. But it's just it's kind of shocking to me that. I feel like they. I feel like we sat and watched the nudity in it when I was at school. Well, you see, the nudity in it isn't. It isn't sexualized at all, and it's not the disturbing part of it. No, the disturbing part because okay, like let's say you. So no, you watch true, these. True, you true, watch true. these in. Well, you watch these in the order that we're talking about them here now. But I, like, yeah, I watched them in the other direction. But like, it's clear to see that Nicholas uh, Rogue shoots in edit in a stream of consciousness type of fashion to kind of visually show us the way people are thinking by way of how he, yeah. he edits it together. And I think some stuff at the beginning of this movie then qualifies a, a, those sections as much more disturbing um, and reasons reason that, to yeah. stop uh, kids from watching it than any of the nudity. Anyway, but go on. Can you, can, like, can you remember teachers showing you good films at school? Because like my French, because I think this is a, a very good film. My mm. French teacher showed also showed us uh, La Haine, yeah, um, yeah, which seems pretty gutsy in uh, retrospect. We watched it. And we were shown you, American History X. Yeah, um, and that well, that was in your like PE class or something. <laughs> <laughs> like, don't, yeah. don't lose it, basketball folks. <laughs> uh, no, well, what was that for? That was for some, I think some. I think it was for. Um, 
civics class that we were showing that that's it i feel like i uh well no i would have almost been finished school by the time american history x came out we were showing the passion of the, might of the even, christ as well well that i was already way out of school when that came out anyway uh, yeah so you're yeah so i i just i remember thinking i i remember at the, yeah so even when as i was saying my french teacher showed us lion i remember thinking at the time like this is really good. So like, why does my teacher like it? <laughs> you know, because teachers aren't real people. Um, that was always my takeaway. But I think, I remember thinking like, I enjoyed Walkabout. Well, I don't know if I enjoyed Walkabout when I watched it, but it's strange now to think back on it. Like I was saying, like just the entire, f when I was watching this film, I hadn't seen it in over 20 years. Mm. And wow. I could have... I could have drawn it for you. Like, it's so, the imagery is so strong. Yeah, it's very striking. From moment one, yeah. I would say. Um, yeah. Even, yeah. Even, the superb, even the suburban stuff is, is memorable in the way it's shot. And I think that's, this is, that's Rogue's power. Like, his eye for cinematography and the, the editing techniques used. Uh, I think that was, that was what he was great at. Um, so, getting to the plot, the film opens with establishing shots of Sydney. We see a lot of people's legs. A lot of legs, a lot of suggesting, walkers. Suggesting the walking yeah, exactly. mm, I may picked play up a on rather that. large role in the film. Yeah, There's a slightly bizarre high school class. We see Jenny Agatha sitting in her class, and they're, <laughs> they're doing breathing exercises and going... <sighs> there's an entire mm. room full of children going... <sighs> Yeah, yeah. And then they have to go A, B, C, D, E. What subject is that? Uh, That's my I think question. it's elocution. Is it elocution? Yeah. She she does have a, an incredibly annoying posh English voice. And the, she's got elocution tapes Throughout. that they're playing later in the movie too. To oh, is that what they to are? To great effect, right. yeah. I didn't even... Well, there's a different types of them, but the first out. ones that you hear are her elocution tapes. Electrocution. So anyway, uh, we cut to a lovely house overlooking Sydney Bay. A mother prepares food in the kitchen... While her father watches over his young son and teenage daughter swimming in a pool. The perfect life? What could possibly go wrong? Indeed. Yeah, I think it, like, it, this is... Is there, any, is there any hint as to why daddy breaks down? No. I, I, I flicked back through the film. No. And he comes out of an office building and it, I, I can't even place... You know, they, they make reference to the Second World War, but in terms of it, be, or or the First World War, in terms of it being like Armistice Day or, or or whatever, but it's clearly way past that point. I mean, the novel was written in 59, and this is being filmed in 69, so... Well, here's the thing. So, just, so we, we pan from this brick wall, and all of a sudden we're in the outback, which, like, there's a recurring motif in this oh, of, like, nature over coming yeah. civility yeah. and just like it's raw just naked savagery uh, just taking it over and like something kind of like that but like the animalistic side of that seems almost seems to happen to the father and this is the disturbing thing that i was yeah, referring no, I, to I, I i got it yeah yeah so he's sitting yeah. in the car and then she's she's getting something out of the boot, and there's just an uncomfortable kind of shot up her skirt, and cut back to the father's yeah, that's, head. I I was so this is exactly. Um, is there any hint of him having molested using his daughter? That's exactly what I was thinking. But the, he, um, I was thinking throughout the film, like Nicholas Rogue leaves this kind of gaze at like Jen, Jenny Agatha. Mm. He's constantly almost trying to creep the camera up her skirt mm. and like looking at her legs the entire time. So 
I wasn't sure is like, is this Nicholas Rogue or is this like he definitely leaves a shot of the father looking like creep leering at his daughter. Yes, yes, yes. Which is extremely disturbing. And then yeah, I noticed the that thing too. is the second he right the second he starts shooting, she yeah. go, she knows it's uh, fucking she, game yeah, she, over. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, she gets the kids. She gets her brother out of there because it's like she's kind of was expecting her father to snap or something. Mm. By the way, her father is Australian character actor John Mellion, uh, who famously went on to appear as Walter in Crocodile Dundee, uh, Mick Mick Dundee's friend and confidant. Do you know I've never seen uh, Crocodile I, Dundee? Oh my god. What, and I guess you haven't seen Crocodile Dundee too either. No, I have not, but I've heard Colin Quinn's anecdotes about it. Oh, man, it's great. So at the time of filming this film, John Melliam was 35. Jesus Christ. I'm 38, almost 39. I mean, like, you've aged be, a lot he better. He could be my dad. He looks awful. He could be my dad. As actually his son comments, uh, do you get a big red nose from boozing, he asks. Yeah, yep. Yeah. Okay, so very sadly, he died of cirrhosis at 55, oh, well, just after we, finishing Crocodile Dundee. We can see too. it in his skin, <laughs> the cirrhosis My already God, firming. Yeah. 35 years old, it's insane. Yeah, like, yeah. Because thinking, thinking back to Chronicles of Riddick, when Carl Urban was 31, I look at him, he looks about 12. Looks like, like I could be yeah. Carl Urban's dad at that point. But John Mellion could be my dad, which is, again, yeah, it's the, the alcohol folks, not just saying. And something about the celluloid back in the day as well. The way films were shot in the 70s mm. captures the dirt in people's fingernails um, more so. Um, but yeah, God, he looks awful in this film. Uh, yeah, yeah. Perfectly cast for what he's about to do. Right. So, yeah, after he starts shooting at the kids, like you mentioned, he the kids hide. Um, and then daddy goes back to the car. Takes the gas can out, sets the car on fire, and then shoots himself in the head. Yeah, off screen, mm. we don't out of shot, we don't see it. Yeah, we don't see it, but you see the imagery that is is repeated frequently yeah. of him being sort of lying next to the car, and at one point later on in the film is played backwards to have him kind of yeah, sitting yeah. up. After you know, after killing himself, which is is very disturbing. Yeah, and then we've got the nature uh, like flies overcoming the picnic in in seconds, which is an mm. kind of image we will keep reverting back to. Yeah, you see that on the various dead animals, etc. So the boy and the girl start walking in the baking sun and almost succumb to the heat before finding a small oasis. Mm. They eat the fruit from the tree and drink water from the watering before uh, from the watering hole before it dries up. And uh, yeah, the section feels a bit like Riddick again. <laughs> Just <laughs> that does wandering the harsh landscape. A little bit, yeah, a little bit. It all comes back to Riddick. Getting though. their getting, getting their bums out like yeah, that's yeah. well, not yet, but. The, is, do, you want, do you want me to just fire through? <laughs> no, 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 no. Questions when well, things come uh, up. Like yeah. first of all, I want to uh, talk like a little bit about so stuff. On the radio is keeps comment, mm. commenting on what's going on. So we, they've got a tape about the ex, the eventual extinction of man. Like it'll all be over in a second. <laughs> and this like I, they keep showing this like with insects over like crawling all over stuff. That's kind of like nature taking 
taking the earth back in terms of civility but then it equates the the insects quite a bit as we go on in the movie to the aboriginal people which i don't know what to make of that but it it happens Mm. like they're crawling over the car and shit later anyway continue yeah 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 anyway so next they see a young aborigine in the distance hunting a big lizard which he kills and gives to the white kids he also shows them how to siphon water out of the ground uh, this is where you get uh, Jenny Agutter's excellent attempt to communicate with the boy. <laughs> she's like, English? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. English. Yeah, you're right. She does her. <laughs> she's definitely had elocution lessons. Do you speak English? Yeah. Uh, the Aborigine boy is played by David Goldpilil, who went on to play Neville in Crocodile Dundee, the film you've never seen. Yes, never seen that. Um, yeah, I I read his 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 Wikipedia Wikipedia bio is quite uh, interesting. In recent years, he's had a few run-ins, a few alcohol-fueled run-ins with the the lo- local law enforcement in Darwin, where he lives. Oh, one thing I would like to yeah yeah. So he comes along as a kind of a black savior figure, which is mm-hmm. uh, and you know that underwrites the whole classical trope, and basically flips nasty old nature on its head because before. He comes along, like Rogue focuses loads in on these fucking terrifying looking spiky lizard yokes. Just ever like just mm. keeps focusing in on well, just ter- terrifying creatures. Half, the film is half nature documentary. I yeah, was yeah, for wondering sure. If for that, sure. Like do, how does that how does like does does that work for you? Because I know you're a fan of seeing places at certain times and kind of how they were in a in a gritty way. Do you do you feel like you know nineteen sixty nine's Australian Outback or is it more you <laughs> I'd say it looks much it the same a, these days. Um probably. The, the no there uh, when it comes to like um, period pieces uh of the of the time and sh- and location shooting like of a period I I would like I'm more interested in the human settings obviously. But still I would I would have found it interesting um yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, they, like I, I did genuinely, yeah, I did get this kind of buzz, for, that kind of buzz from this film as well, for sure. Yeah, the young, uh, so yeah, the young white uh, boy, the again, the 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 those characters uh, are called boy and girl, the boy and girl. Mm. Um, so yeah, the young, the young, the young boy, the white boy, the the younger brother, he's credited as Lucy and John. Uh, in the film, although he now goes by Luke Luke Rogue, he's uh, he, he's uh, Nicholas Rogue's son. Ah, okay. He is a producer these days, and he served as producer on Lynn Ramsey's "We Need to Talk About Kevin." Ah, great film. Yeah, which Ramsey admits was heavily influenced by "Don't Look Now." Huh. Which again, when you see the editing of that film, oh for it sure, yeah, yeah, because it's extremely yeah, anything Ramsey's of, done actually. Uh, all of yeah, yeah. exactly. I, that's why I like Lynn. That's why I kind of connect. Yeah, Nicholas uh, uh, Rogue and Lynn Ramsey, both filmmakers that I really like their their visual style mm. when I when I consider it. Um, so yeah, we have a the, yeah, but the Aborigine boy does some hunting. We see a lot of there's a lot of kind of. Um, animals killing other animals and all, all these the shots tend to mirror the mood of the scenes which is as you were saying before about kind of heavy-handed explaining ex- the imagery explaining exactly what's mm. going on 
Yeah, I that didn't bother me. It doesn't bother me that you feel like it. You felt like it was hitting you over the head. No, 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 but, not necessarily. No, no, no. I don't no. like. I I don't have an issue with that at all. It's just something like a, I'm noticing. It's, an, it's definitely a choice. It's a stylistic choice. I would agree with you, but yeah, no, no, no. I, I, I don't have liked, an issue with I it like, at all. I like um, it. It's like, I'm just mainly I enjoy that Simpsons joke where they parody okay. into the party. That's all. <laughs> all right. Okay. Uh, right. So next, there's a scene I w- I have a question for you about, which is we have the really surreal scene out in the desert where a female scientist is at a weather station with a bunch of horny yes. guys okay. who are all watching her cross and uncross their legs. It has the tone of a carry-on film. Yes, it does. What is going on? I made, what is going on? Andy, here? I made the exact same note <laughs> about the. Is this a carry-on? <laughs> what is, is that? It, all I, about? I wrote. I wrote down carry-on weather scientists. Yeah, exactly. Um, I don't it's, fucking know. I don't fucking know. What is and that it's all the about? first I mean, of two scenes that are very difficult yes, to explain. Yeah, I know. The, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't make a note of the other scene, but I know exactly what it is. So when we get to, yeah. we'll, we'll come. We'll, we'll try and fit. I know in, where it so. fits, but I didn't make notes of the second yeah. one either because it, okay. it's even more bamboozling. The second because one because I, I was like, I was like, what's the what's the relevance of this? But then I think we could probably get there. I think um, we're cut. All right, we're cutting back to just yeah, the, just these. We're cutting back to s- kind of civilization. Yeah, we're showing how close they are exactly. We're showing how close they are to civilization because mm. um, the the weather balloons that these uh, scientists are kind of letting go, the kids find one of the weather balloons. So we're we're seeing that they're not that far. I away. also think it's significant then, that they're weather scientists because um, the boys, the boy, and by by uh, default, then them are just reading nature uh, so instinctively. Um, and without any kind of a scientific methodology, um, right. and it's shown as a kind of a and the, like there's something sort of nice and beautiful about it. And like for example, before they meet the Aboriginal boy, um, nature is just just terrifying to them. But then with the arrival yeah. of him, they sort of arrive yeah, into true. a kind of yeah, a paradise, like a kind of cipher, yeah, that yeah, they're yeah. wandering around. Whereas then we cut back to civilization, and by contrast with with them and the boys it's just a bunch of nasty horrible horny scientists yeah. perving up this girl and one of them is in a all, all, one of them is of in the a, world is in a lace vest it's disgusting yeah. he looks yeah, like the daffy guy, the from guy's little got Britain. really guys guys got short shorts as well so next is the most controversial scene in the film mm-hmm. i guess in in nowadays a 16 year old jenny agatha swims naked in a pool for around three minutes screen time uh, Agatha herself was uh, supposedly shocked at the explicit nature of the film, but remained on good terms with Nicholas Rogue throughout his life. Yeah, what do you what do you make of the the old nudity here? Um, like I felt, uh, I felt like it was coming. I felt like it was going to happen. I felt like that was the way I, I felt for moment one watching the uh, um, girl take her brother to the desert i felt like we were gonna see something like that like basically her flower essentially and i felt like that was gonna yeah. invo- involve it isn't nudity. it isn't sexualized no it's not it's not sexualized at all but i could it does feel like it's slightly lingering have you ever seen uh wait for it have you ever seen um peter weir film where they all go up a fucking hill picnic at the hanging rock nope uh well uh, that has a similar kind of uh feel to it 
in that it's not like it is sexual it is nudity. sexual but it's not yeah. sexualized yeah if that makes okay. sense i guess you could probably argue the same thing here because you've got i guess uh the aborigine male characters like around the same age i think he's supposed to be 16 mm. going on walkabout yeah. as well yeah. so and he the actor was 16 so you've got like these two teens who kind of have like a hormonal response that neither of them particularly understand i think mm. yeah 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 and uh and that and it's that's kind of leads to the tragedy that occurs in the film but yeah okay Let, to um, backtrack then a little bit just a tiny bit because yeah she's swimming around naked um, and then we see a lizard do a mating thing where it fucking wah, it blurks out it like it just uh, expands its face massively in kind of a mating dance uh, and then then the next thing is when we get the the it's not even a competition in a film of bizarre scenes the most bizarre scene which is when this woman yeah, just walks up. Who at the start and, uh, I thought was maybe yeah. a flash forward and um, was right. was girl in the future. But no, in hindsight, after the credits rolled, I figured it wasn't. It was just exactly what yeah. it looked like. Talk us through it. No, it was. It wasn't. So there's a a, a a youngish lady, kind of starts talk. She notices the Aborigine boy walking and is kind of talking to him like boy, <laughs> boy, and. Uh, and she's like, oh, you're not talking to me. And then she notices that that he's with the two white children. But then she just walks down to the little town where she's staying. Like, there's a bunch of Aborigines. Making models either, of Aborigines. They, yeah, making, right, making models. And then there's this kind of guy who looks like a sort of stereotypical evil <laughs> slave owner type guy. And she's this this girl looks in when she gets down to being in the room with that guy looks way younger mm. and seems to be in some sort of fairly awful sexual relationship with them by the looks of it oh yeah that's just, it's just just yeah. grimness personified that whole yeah scene. it's just so it's, it's just, you, it's just it's, i don't yeah i don't know it's a bizarre scene I, making, it, do you remember is it, it in the book well the book we will we'll come to the difference between the book and this okay but fair no, enough I would fair say enough no uh, so go on the trio continue on they come to an abandoned house and try to set up home the aborigine boy heads out to do some hunting and incur encounters some some armed hunters uh white guys in a jeep who are basically just gunning down animals and oh yeah he does this he does the kind of like the the kind of single tier <laughs> type thing something like a, that yeah Na picking up the picking up the trash, yeah, the Native uh, American, and uh, he looks a bit, he looks a tad upset. Yeah, but I think this. he just looks. I think he's just upset because they're not eating them; they're just shooting them dead. Yeah, they're just exactly, they're, and then they're getting eaten by uh, by insects, the swarming insects, I guess. Yeah, that's so, nature becoming chaotic again. Um, yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. They're exactly bringing they're bringing chaos to his uh, his beautiful paradise. The Garden of Eden. Um, so next time we see the Aborigine, he is wearing body paint and he begins a mating ritual outside the house, which goes on overnight. Yes. The, the girl is scared and seemingly oblivious to what is happening. It's like the arrival of sexual tension and it yeah. is actually... <laughs> it's it right. 
I have to say, despite the fact that this is uh, amazing dance being represented, it isn't. Uh, if, uh, we in Westernized culture have the exact same cause and effect from our own mating dances in that all of a sudden we become horny we can't explain it or control it it's unrelenting and we just freak young ladies out and they don't know what to make of us <laughs> so i when i was watching this despite she doesn't understand it but i just i could relate to him completely because he doesn't even know what the <laughs> fuck he's doing he doesn't know why he's doing it he's just going uh how about this uh how about this uh, but I, I mean, but I'm assuming he's doing what he's been taught to do, though. No, well, clearly, I mean, yeah, that's what it is. I'm, no, no, no. I'm, I'm sure that's it. But all I, what I'm saying is, it like, despite the fact that it might be from this uh, indigenous culture, thousands of years old, it's like, I mean, we haven't progressed too well, far in the Western world. It must have worked. It some. It must have worked somewhere. Yeah. Okay. I see what you're saying. Yeah. So anyway, when they wake up in the morning, they find that the young Aborigine has hung himself from a tree. In true incel fashion, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> that could be harsh. That's, yeah, harsh. that's funny. Um, the girl brushes <laughs> ants. <laughs> the girl brushes ants off of his chest, mm. which yeah, it's. I know you killed him, you bitch. Uh, so you know, it's out of order. And then um, they they bumble off along the road. Yeah, they 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 head off. They're like, okay, let's go now. He's dead. So the brother and sister <laughs> head along a nearby road to find a mining town. They interact with a local resident who reminds them that civilization is essentially chock full of cunts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought this was really interesting because uh, it just, in the end, it's all of it. The guy does after, not give a shit yeah. about whatever. They're like, oh, what's that? You're lost. He's like, drop that, drop Stop that, drop that. <laughs> Put that down. Put that down. I thought it was really interesting because after spending so much time out in nature and then we're back there and it's like, oh, wow, human society is actually bizarre and alien. It, that's exactly the feeling that yeah. I had was watching this. When you when it starts and they're out in the outback and they're lost, it feels threatening mm. and kind of disturbing. But then as you continue through the film, when they finally get back to society, it's far more disturbing to see the... It's like seeing the modern world and like the urban world and the mine is, is far more is far more disturbing the mine is already falling apart the mine is itself being like yeah, eaten so by nature yeah exactly yeah yeah yeah. Um, yeah indeed. and then we've actually got something we've the boy does a bit of a uh, wanton childish destruction which is awesome yeah i was watching that yeah, going they got, i can't go to the local mine and smash it up yeah. which is is fun Ever... So then, in the final in the final scene, we see a now grown up girl talking to her husband about the most boring shit home. in the world. Yeah, <laughs> they're, they're in, their, in her childhood home overlooking Sydney Bay, mm. while he drones on some shite about his work. <laughs> oh, <that's> so... <laughs> she 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 daydreams it's actually about a very skinny dipping with could, her brother uh, and get some holiday yeah, on get the moved to accounting <laughs> and get moved to the accounting. So yeah, she's she's daydreaming about skinny dipping with her brother and the Aborigine boy, and you see some. You were you were were you worried you weren't going to see boy penis? Was that a concern? Because we got they a bit of tundra, they gave yeah. you some at the end there. We got a nice just at the end, nice little boy willy to put you soundly to sleep. Mm, yummy. So the differences that I can recall and from just flicking through the synopsis of the novel are that 
in the novel, the children are American and they're stranded because of a plane crash. In Australia? Yes. Okay. The Aborigine boy dies of flu contracted from the white boy. Okay. I probably prefer <laughs> uh, rogues for cinematic storytelling. Uh, 100%. Yeah. 100%. Um, what happens in the novel is that but the did girl... Did write the screenplay? No, he didn't. Somebody called Edward Bond wrote the screenplay. Go on. So in the novel, the girl seems to be disgusted by the Aborigine, the, the Aborigine boys called the Bush boy mm-hmm. um, because he's a big supporter of George W. And he, so um, the girl is seemingly disgusted by his nudity mm. and uh, the Bush boy interprets that as that she has kind of foreseen his, his death, like in their culture. Mm he interprets that as that he's going to die because of how that occurs. So they have like misunderstandings going forward um, because he, he's on walkabout. He's supposed to, to, he's supposed to leave them. He's not supposed to be around other people, but he's worried that he's worried that the boy and the girl will die if they're left alone, which they clearly would. So he kind of then has to look after them, and he's most concerned about going about being placed in like a proper burial site. And then eventually, he contracts flu from the boy and uh, succumbs to the illness. But again, I think it still has the same sort of vibe at the end, where the the boy and the girl are like, "Okay, he's dead. Now what shall we do? Let's go over this way." They just don't give a fuck. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, yeah, it's, so it seems to, like, from what I've read, it was sort of hailed as a as a masterpiece from the get-go. And I have to say, I'd be inclined to agree with that. Um, I would li- like, of these two, I watched the two of them uh, in an afternoon, one after the other, opposite order to you, walk about first, then don't look now. And I watched them with my girlfriend, and she made the point quite rightly at the end that it's just too much to watch these two in a row because i don't know yeah i i wouldn't do that that's insane you're too you're too used to your you know glorious avengers infinity war style of cutting um (laughs) that it's yeah it is quite disorientating to watch the two of them at once he made the i mean yeah he made them like two years apart Mm. so he released them two years apart you're not you're not supposed to watch them on the same day i think yeah, because some it, cl- oh, there's close lot, proximity, but lot it's to not be the taken. Same well, I don't worry. I watched uh, two episodes of Banshee immediately afterwards and deleted any bit of uh, any bit of poignancy that the, the movies might have brushed off on me. Um, but yeah, I really, really enjoyed both of them. I would be inclined to watch both of them again, uh, but probably not yeah. for a couple of years. Well, I was going to say the thing about Walkabout that's interesting to me is, uh, as I say, I read the, the the book and watched the film. And I realized that my interpretation of the story that I remember more than anything is the film. Because mm. even at the young age of like 13 or whenever I saw the film, the I remember our teacher like talking to us quite a lot about about the death of the bush boy and what like why that occurred and like trying to explain to us of like the about the notion of mm. like the whole mating ritual etc cetera, etc cetera. and you know um it's it's crazy to like that is as i say it's like it's burnt into my brain but that that's 
That's the version of the story that I remember way more than the novel. So I think Nicholas Rogue was, I think that's a successful and the thing is, adaptation. Nicholas Rogue seems to have had a similar uh, career trajectory to who we've established as our hero on this podcast so far, I suppose, William Friedkin, in that just... Oh, in... I thought you were talking about Vin Diesel. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he almost has a similar one, except... No, not really. But uh, it's just that um, in a mad moment in history and some favours he made allowed him just absolute artistic freedom for a period of a few years and he fucking like he wrote it into the ground to be fair to him and pretty much couldn't make get get anything made for quite a few years and then would spur why did it all go tits up for nicholas rogue if you see bad timing really really fucking bummed people out i'm i think because <laughs> bad timing is a total fucking bummer it's re- like really have you ever heard of um the film peeping tom the Powell and Pressburger yes. film. The, like, I've seen a few Powell and Pressburger films, and they're f- quite commercial fare, but Peeping Tom is really disturbing for the time it was made, and it's about voyeurism I think and I cinema. Watched, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've yeah, seen yeah. it. I watched bits of it when it was on Channel 4 <laughs> a million years ago. It's a freakazoid of a film, and it really, really fucking disturbed people and bummed people out. I have a feeling a very mm-hmm. similar thing must have happened with bad timing, because bad timing, despite the fact that it is his kind of filmmaking technique taken to its nth degree... I, I yeah. it, like I watched it a couple of years ago and it was too much for me. It's a fucking disturbing movie, um, and I think yeah. that might have um, put like star, so like Star Wars put William Friedkin to bed, you know, bad timing put Rogue to bed. But for a few years, and it appears Rogue might have gotten a start by like you were saying all the connections he made over the years. Um, Definitely, and then of course he was able to get Mick Jagger in performance. Which, uh, yeah. you know, a lot of people probably just went to see that because Mick Jagger was in it and came away with something. Yeah, good point. Um, so, yeah, uh, just they had this moment in time where they were able to make whatever the fuck they wanted for a few years and they made hay out of that. And I mean, and then he came back years later and made The Witches, and The Witches is fantastic. But yeah. if you just look at that yeah, output like from like that. 1970 to 1980, it's just a bunch of mad films. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen The Man yeah. Who Fell to Earth, have you? No, I haven't. I is that even a proper film? I thought it was some kind of like David Bowie related thing. No, it's supposed to be. It is, da- is David it, Bowie's just, in it. David like Bowie's a, the star. Yeah, but is is it like is it is it a proper narrative feature? And it just happens to have David Bowie. No, it in is it. David Bowie play, kind, plays in, an in alien head, who becomes like, like a Steve Jobs type figure, apparently. Oh, uh, because in my head, it's like moonwalker you know the michael jackson thing <laughs> it's like a vehicle for david bowie like of music no i think video. labyrinth was his one of that oh well that's a great film um anyway i haven't seen that i shall we toss a coin let's fucking toss a coin yeah what are yeah. you bringing to the table this week well my film for this week is uh so yeah we've recently watched films starring lee marvin and donald sutherland with point blank and don't look now so i thought it would be worth checking out a film starring them both, 1969's The Dirty Dozen. I saw this uh, I saw this film kind of being banded around when they made that awful Suicide Squad mm. film. And I, I guess I'd heard about The Dirty Dozen. It's the kind of thing that my dad's probably watched a million times. Yeah. But when I, I, when I actually went and looked at a bit of the kind of general idea about it, that it's about like a, a group of 
like murderers yeah. of criminals being being made into a, like a, a a second world war squad. I thought, oh, okay, this looks this sounds up my alley. Yeah, me too. And I have I have not watched Dirty Dozen either, so I would be happy for you to win this week. Or, well, I don't know. Would you be happy for me to win? And uh, maybe you're just petty well, that way. Even though I have I'm bringing what looks to be a good movie to the table. John yeah, Frank. I hear it's good. John Frankenheimer's 1964 film, The Train. John Frankenheimer's director of great thrillers. Um, through uh, Black Sunday, The French Connection, two seconds. Oh wait, let, yeah, let's let's stop naming these. Who knows? One of them could. If you win, that might be one of the ones. Who knows? Mm, okay. Well, anyway, so I've got a coin right here. Um, on the so I'm flipping for John Frankenheimer's The Train. You for Dirty Dozen. Uh, okay, I have a a head and a one euro sign. One euro sign, please. The one euro sign wins two weeks in a row oh. for fucking Andy Ritchie. I'm, do you know what? I'm actually disappointed that because you do, you, do you have any idea what I had lined up? I do not. Um, you... So let me tell you that the, the, the train was directed by John Frankenheimer, mm -hmm. but it wasn't his project at first. He replaced the original director, Arthur Penn, after only one week of filming. You were going Bonnie and Clyde. Right. No, this was the first time Frank and Heinmer took over an active shoot from another director. It only happened one other time in his career when he took over from Richard Stanley on the much maligned 1996 film The Island of Dr. Moreau. Ah, I've never seen that. Ah. And you know what? I was all, and I was, and I was also going to watch the 2014 documentary Lost Soul: The Doomed Journey of Richard Stanley's Island of Dr. I Moreau. I have seen that, and it's. Ah. It's quite entertaining. Um, yeah. Okay. Well. Well, that's for another hundred years. For another day. Now. Okay. So in. So what's what we're watching with the Dirty Dozen? I'm looking forward to the Dirty Dozen. Me that's too. Good. Me too. I'm... No, I had to because I, I. You realize I will only watch these two films this week probably and nothing else. So this is my entire viewing. Well, I'll, I probably I'm hoping to get. You'll be watching Banshee as well, but yeah. Well, I'm almost done uh, a season of Banshee now, so that'll leave room for the certain certainly something like the Dirty Dozen. Okay, I was thinking about competing with a Man on a Mission sort of movie, and then I looked uh, through the Man Men on a Mission movies, and I realized I'd seen most of them. <laughs> so yeah, and let, let, let's remember that the Dirty Dozen is two and a half hours. So indeed, God, I hope this fifteen-minute uh, making of featurette that you're recommending is. Oh no! I, well, I've I've actually okay. I, I'm not sure of the uh, I'm not sure of the running time of what I'm about to suggest. So I'm going to look it up. Um, the I decided instead of going with uh, man with Man on a Mission, I could go with its cousin. Um, it's causing the heist movie. Uh, so mm. I'm going with a little French film, 1955, called Rafifi. Okay. And Rafifi, directed by Jules Dersine, uh kind of co-written by him again. And it's 115 minutes long, which, I mean, okay, that's, that's all right. Fine. That's manageable, isn't it? Always wanted to see Rafifi. Always wanted to see The Dirty Dozen. Looking fucking forward to this week. All right, I've already acquired the Dirty Dozen. I was in the process of acquiring the train. I will now cancel that process <laughs> of acquiral. I will, I will call down to my local block, Blockbuster and I will tell them to take the reserve off of that DVD. By the way, there's at and, least uh, two films that you had proposed that lost that I'm planning on bringing back into the fold soon enough, so be prepared for that. I'm allowed to do well, that, we'll right? Say, 
uh, yeah, okay, I guess you can. Yeah, the other person can. That's within the rules. All right, cool. Well, uh, looking forward, uh, looking forward to talking about these movies then. Indeed, yeah. This uh, was going to be a bit more war and Rafifi, whatever that is. I look forward to seeing that. It's a type of pastry. Okay. All right. Well, goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. <laughs>